Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Support for Alaist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us, along with critics Wade Major of Synagogues.com and Claudia Puig, the president of the L.A. Film Critics Association and program director for the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. We begin with the adaptation of Judy Bloom's 1970 book, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret Rachel McAdams, stars Claudia. What did you think of Are You There, God? I really enjoyed this. Um, this is a very winning and charming coming-of-age tale. It's told with humor and sweetness and intelligence. We've certainly seen a lot of coming-of-age tales, but this one, of course, is based on the Judy Bloom classic, and it's very affectionate, and it's a sharp-eyed look at adolescence. Um, it's interesting, because I went to the premiere, and I had just read the book, and I was kind of underwhelmed by the book. Frankly, I'd not read it before, and I was kind of like, this is sort of dated, and didn't feel that fresh to me, and <laughs> Judy Bloom was at the premiere, and she said, I'm going to say something no writer has ever said. The movie is better than my book. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I, she's absolutely right. Um, I, you know, I, the, where the little bits that feel dated, because it's written 53 years ago, it comes alive. And something that the writer-director uh, did in her adaptation, Kelly Freeman Craig, was just make it feel more, even though it's very much of its time, it also has a currency. And it really, really works. I mean, Bloom is a national treasure. I, I actually stayed up last night and watched the documentary about her. Which came out last week. Yes, yeah. which is great. I, I urge everyone to see that, too. Um, and, you know, she's the most banned children's book writer. Um, she's, you know... Wears that this, with pride. Yes, she does, definitely. And she has a bookstore in Key West in which she, you know, uh, has a whole section of banned books. Um, but what's great about this, I thought the casting was absolutely spot on. Um, Abby Ryder Fortson plays Margaret about as well as anyone could ever imagine a... She's more kind of multifaceted than she is on the page. Um, and she's curious. She's open-hearted. She's funny. She's smart. She's And on top of it, she's thoroughly believable. There's nothing, like, precocious about her. Um, and, the you know, the story doesn't mock her in any way. It treats her like a like a you know, fully fledged adolescent. Um, and she's, of course, coming to terms with her changing body and female rites of passage and all of that. The family has moved from New York City to suburban New Jersey. She's very close to her grandmother, who's played by Kathy Bates, in this very charming, vivacious way. And Rachel McAdams, as her mom, is just perfect. She's this artistic woman who... Um, has to move to the suburbs and isn't quite comfortable with it. And one of the things I loved about this, in addition to looking at the sort of coming of age of a of a eleven year old, it looks at the sort of the awkwardness of maybe reaching middle age in the suburbs for somebody who is a more of a city person, and that's Rachel McAdams' character. And it looks at um, you know, this woman who's vivacious and in her 60s, and she's coming to terms with her older age and where that puts her. So it really, there's more complexity here than there was in the book, and it's just done really well. She, uh, the the director had done The Edge of 17, um, which also looks at sort of a teenage exploration of sex in high school, and I think she was ideally suited to adapt this. The director and the uh, adapter is Kelly Freeman Craig. Uh, the film is Are You There, God? It's Me, Mar Margaret Wade. As the father of a 10-year-old girl, this was the most terrifying film I have seen since The Shining. Uh, <laughs> it, it, uh, it, 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 but that's a good thing um, because, you know, I'm not familiar with the book, never read the book. I grew up in the 70s, but, you know, I'm a boy. So this is, uh, this is sort of, you know, opening your eyes to a completely different perspective, a different, you know, especially a perspective that took place when I was growing up as well. And I think it's just an absolutely wonderful film. It's absolutely wonderful. And it makes sense that it's better than the book because it's made with the, the advantage of hindsight. Yeah. The book was written in its moment. This can look back and it can take and it can put that kind of nostalgic veneer on it, which which enables you 
to look at the past in a in a in a in a more meaningful way to the present. And I think it's a very smart script. I mean, she, Kelly Freeman Craig has done a wonderful job. I'm glad they didn't have someone else write it and her direct it. She she sees this through creatively, beginning to end. It's her vision. It's her interpretation. There's no meddling in it. Lionsgate, you know, behind this, not a studio that would have added 14 other layers of development meddling. And the casting is perfect. No meddling there. She casts the right actresses. There's no, let's get somebody who's on this TV show or that TV show or brings this currency. None of those compromises. It's a complete artistic effort for this director, this writer-director. And you feel it. You connect to it emotionally on every level. I'm a middle-aged man, and I was completely connected to these adolescent girls and their experiences. And that says a lot. This is a beautiful crossover film. And there's, there's a, and I'm forgetting the name of it, but there's a, there's a, a, a test as to uh, certain, uh, only the handful of films that, that Bechtel, pass it. The Bechtel test. The Bechtel test. Yeah. Uh, very few films pass that. Yeah. This one passes it. Yeah. Which is? What is the test measure? The, it has to have, uh, like, female lead characters who aren't defined by their connections they, to men. Yes. Things okay. like that. And, and they have to have a certain amount of dialogue or presence with in the other film, women and with not other ab- women about yes. men with men yes yeah yeah and this passes it are you there god it's me margaret in wide release the comedic drama written and directed by kelly freeman adapted from judy bloom's book it's rated pg-13 the sports biopic big george foreman the miraculous story of the once and future heavyweight champion of the world is directed by george tillman jr who co-wrote it with frank baldwin it stars chris davis wait what'd you think i am so glad to have george tillman jr back in the saddle again ever since soul food uh one of my favorite directors he he brings so much heart and soul and and real emotional honesty to his films. And George Foreman's story is one that needs it because it's told in a perfect three-act structure and not the traditional kind of Sid Field three-act, but the three acts of George Foreman's life, which is this man born into poverty who becomes an Olympic champion and then world, champ, world heavyweight champion and then pivots, leaves it all behind and becomes a minister, becomes a pastor, becomes a born-again um, uh, preacher and then comes back to boxing and becomes world champion at 45, which has never been accomplished before. It's it's three completely incredible chapters and acts in one of the most remarkable lives of our lifetime. And to their credit, they spent almost no time on the George Foreman grill because it's not really that important. It's a cute little throwaway. <laughs> Made thing him in a the lot film. of money. Made apparently. him a ton of money. But it's emblematic of this tenacity and this this willingness to to just go with whatever life throws him and to never let anyone else define him. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit saccharine at, at times. It probably isn't quite perfectly balanced. It, it, it gives, you know, the that last chapter, the comeback chapter, probably could have come a little bit earlier and given a little more attention. You can quibble with things like that. But you're watching this movie and you're just thinking, this is really a beautiful story. And uh, you're with it every step of the way. And Forrest Whitaker as, you know, the coach who, who made him and stuck with him the whole time and now in the, in the Boxing Hall of Fame um, is just wonderful also brings just so much heart and soul to this film so i mean it's a wonderful wonderful good traditional hollywood biopic in all the best ways george foreman one of my favorite interviews over the years of air talk i just love talking with him very transparent and open about his life and and the things that he was very regretful about very open about his failings as a person and he's an executive well. producer on this and there and there is no there are no un, uh, rose-colored glasses i mean his the, the the his failings are a big part of the film yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciated talking with him big george foreman the miraculous story of the once and future heavyweight champion of the world's rated pg-13 it's in wide release the Romanian drama RMN, which essentially are, are the initials of, uh, of a scanning machine like an MRI in Romanian, uh, is written and directed by Christian Munju. Uh, Claudia, please start us on RMN. Uh, I really like this film. I, Christian Munju did the wonderful film Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, um, and um, he... Uh, got the Palm d'Or for that. This was also a, at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, it, it's a really fascinating film about insularity, about cultural divisions, about about 
uh, xenophobia, most of all. And uh, while it takes place in a very small town in Transylvania, and no, there's no vampires or anything. Mm-hmm. Think Transylvania, it is a real place. It's yes. a real place. And it's and it's interesting because at times it looks really horrible and barren. Other times it looks quite beautiful. Um, but anyway, this is um, it takes place in Transylvania. But it explores the kind of fear and fear and loathing of immigrants and outsiders that is happening all over the world today. So it's, it feels very germane. It feels very timely. Um, it's an indictment of racism and closed mindedness. Um, and, and it's, you know, sort of focused on this insular community as it's dealing with immigration, both immigration and emigration, because there are people, a smaller group of people coming from other countries there because the, you know, they aren't paying enough for the local people who are leaving to go to Germany or various other places. So it, all of that is, is the backdrop. And that's really the story. But um, we're following this guy, Matthias, um, who is kind of a lunk. He's terse and he's kind of a yeah, he he uh, leaves his job in Germany at a slaughterhouse, and so at the very beginning you're seeing a slaughterhouse, which is quite not a great thing to watch. But um, he comes back to this little Transylvanian village. He wants to reconnect with his son, who's been traumatized. He saw something that he he has made him stop speaking. So there's a lot of interrelationships. He wants to reconnect with his former lover, who is inexplicably drawn to him because she's educated and cultured and he's this brutish, horrible guy. Mm. <laughs> I will never understand that one. But um, And they hire a new worker, a few new workers at the um, bakery that this woman, his, the object of his stalking, um, that she runs. And they, they hire them from Sri Lanka. And the community turns against them, basically. So it starts slowly. It takes a a while for it to take off and you're not really grasping what it's about yet and then once it does it's fascinating and it's a slow burn and it feels urgent um and uh i thought uh, until the end the end was a little ambiguous and it left me wondering it didn't take away from the rest of the film but um it's done in this very naturalistic way there's this great community meeting where these xenophobic townsfolk get very heated about the immigrants that are there it goes on for it's like a long scene that goes on for close to 20 minutes um it's powerful. I, I liked it. We're talking about the Romanian film RMN, which is in Romanian with English subtitles. Wade. Yeah, it's interesting how universal so many of these ideas are. The the ethnicities and the nationalities they change. It reminds me when I was you know years ago when I was in Budapest and they were all complaining about Ukrainians, and you know you can change the names and you can but but it's the dynamics are the same and it's the outsider and it's the outsider yeah. and and i the, what really I, the element here that i found to be much more illuminating and i you know i have a real love hate relationship with romanian films but i love christian munju i love 432 as we call it in the, in the in the critical community but um is that it's it's also very much about romania in a moment of transition and it's it it's facing um, tremendous headwinds on economic growth all over. And uh, that aspect of it, that this isn't just an insular community that's dealing with outsiders and emigration and immigration. It's a community that in many respects is trapped in the past. And and how is it going to move into the future? It, I mean, it looks as, as, it, as if it probably looked 150 years ago. It hasn't really changed. People, they're donkeys and, you know. Uh, so, so, you know, you have that question as well. How, how do these communities transform themselves when everyone is leaving and the people who are who are coming likely aren't going to be there permanently and so there are all of these 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 are questions and they're not really resolved i think that may be partly your your issue with the ambiguity of the end is that you know munju kind of he takes you for with this slow burn and then he sort of throws his hands up in the end and goes I don't have an answer. And <laughs> well, there is no answer. That that's wasn't, it. It was more sort of how it went off in slightly yeah. uh, ghostly way. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. But but you know, it's a it's a Romanian film, and we cut them a lot of slack for yeah. doing experimental things that nobody else does. And uh, he's such a talented filmmaker, and the performances are so strong. So. I think it's I think it's really top notch. We're talking about the film from writer director Christian Munju, RMN. The Romanian drama is in wide release. Uh, let's at least uh, briefly get started. If we can't uh, finish on Sisu, uh, which is a Finnish war film, uh, Wade. This is the most insane movie. Um, I've seen a lot of Neo Tarantino knockoffs. Most of them, they're kind of sad. This one is amazing, and I have to believe that if Quentin Tarantino saw this film, assuming he hasn't seen it yet, he will love it on a level that is incomprehensible. This is basically a remake of A Fistful of Dollars. 
except that instead of Mexicans, you have Nazis. Instead of Clint Eastwood, you have this crazy Romanian prospector with a history. Or, sorry, uh, 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 this crazy Finnish prospector. Still stuck on Romanian. <laughs> I was uh, like, Romanian? Yeah, no, this crazy <laughs> Finnish prospector. And it all takes place in the Lapland part of Finland in the closing days of World War II. So basically, this old guy um, finds a whole lot of gold thinks he's got it made, packs it onto his horse, is is trapped by some Nazis on the road. They take his gold, and man, do they regret it. All right. Sisu is the film from Finland. It's written and directed by Jalmari Hellander. It's rated R and in white release. We have much more to come on Film Week. Our critics joining us this week are Wade Major and Claudia Puig. We'll be back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, inviting everyone to join the ripple effect. Water plays a pivotal role in our lives, and every individual's actions matter in preserving this resource. Each action we take starts the ripple of change, making a greater impact throughout the community. Be part of the ripple effect and learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. Larry Mantle with Claudia Puig and Wade Major. Wade was just telling us about the Finnish movie Sisu, which is in both English and Finnish in wide release. Wade, just a final note on Sisu. Yeah, it, people should know. It's a Finnish film, but it's it's in, it's almost entirely in English. Okay. And the level of violence is so off the chart. It's uh, it's really quite a ride. All right. It is rated R in wide release. Uh, the French comedic drama, The Romance Other People's Children, written and directed by Rebecca Zlotowski. Claudia. I love this film. I first saw it last September at TIFF and um, was determined to program it for Santa Barbara. We did. And it was a festival favorite. Um, I love how the writer-director looks at it kind of forming a bond um, with children, motherhood, if you want to call it that in a very broad way, from a fresh perspective. It's sort of outside the traditional biological sense. And I love the the lead actress. is just such a luminous presence, uh, Virginia, Virginie Efira. Um, she's so nuanced. And the film is really she's just so fully drawn there's so much honesty here it looks into the ways that people can foster substantive and gratifying bonds with children outside of the parental role um it looks at the human ability to, to nurture young people and it's all done with a, a light touch um and yet there's a lot of uh, full spectrum of emotions here um i just found it to be really an excellent film the little girl who uh a four-year-old daughter oh. of She's so oh. cute. Oh. Yeah, Layla. Her, uh, the actress is Callie Ferreira Gonsalves. She's just this wonderful Unreal. little actress. Yeah, and she's a real kid. She covers the gamut from oh, like adorable so to unruly to everything in between. And I, I really love this. Is a woman who connects with she has a relationship with this man and this is this her, the man's daughter and which i'm sure a lot of people can relate to that yes, experience and yes. so if the relationship doesn't make it there's more at stake than just the person exactly who's, who's your boyfriend or exactly girlfriend. and it explores all of that and also how she's able to help one of her students who's in trouble and so it's really about other people's children it's a perfect title that's the title of film uh, wade i i have to give claudia all the credit for making me watch this because you know I, it was it was kind of between a few other films and this is just so wonderful. Thank God for the French. This is the kind of French filmmaking I grew up on and that I just love. It's beautiful. No car chases, explosions, guns, nothing. It's just people. It's human relationships. And these wonderful series of, of emotional dilemmas that everyone connects to, whether or not you're a parent, whether or not you're you're in these situations, they're so real. The performances are wonderful. Um, it, Virginie uh, Efira, the Belgian actress who stars in this, mm. it 
does so much with so little. It's when she's not saying anything, when she's re- reacting to Layla, when she's reacting to Layla's mother, played by Chiara Mastroianni. Um, and they have a really interesting relationship in this as well. You know, all of the, the little moments where it's just the eyes, the mouth, the body language, and your heart sinks and your heart soars. It's shot in scope with long lenses. I mean, I, you know, all these choices, these really interesting stylistic choices, great French music from, from years ago. Julianne Clerc comes up on the soundtrack, and I just swooned. It was fantastic. I love everything about this wow. movie. Wow, raves yeah, for other people's children. Uh, the film written and directed by Rebecca Zlotowski. It's unrated. It's in French and Hebrew with English subtitles, and you can see it at Lemley's Royal theater in west los angeles the disney plus streaming action fantasy adventure peter pan and wendy's directed by david lowry who co-wrote it with toby halbrooks it's of course uh, based on the play from j.m barry wade oh gosh uh, it, this is such that a doesn't wreck sound good no it's not and i and i do love david lowry i think david lowry is a wonderful director and this is really stylish and nicely made the problem is that we've had so many Peter Pan movies over so many years, starting with Hook, and then you know we had P.J. Hogan's uh, uh, Peter Pan in 2003, which was not Disney adjacent. That was just straight from the book. Um, but still, you know, it's all part the of the canon. Animated original one. The animated original <laughs> which is one. Good. And and you have a problem here, which is it's it, it's fan service to the Disney canon. You have to make it connect to all the Disney stuff, but then they have to be a little self-referential because they're talking about Peter Pan, the book, in the movie, and really Peter Pan's real. And and then it deviates into this weird story detour where we have to somehow redeem Captain Hook with a backstory. And it's 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 too much. And there's too much corporate constraining on on this film that it, it has to do this but it can't do that and so you feel it buckling under the pressure of that and the fact that we're now comparing all these characters and all these actors to the ones who played these parts in those other movies you know I mean nobody did hook like Dustin Hoffman sorry uh, and you know we're now on our third Tinkerbell and we're on our third Smee and you know Jim Gaffigan is playing Smee and is he really a great Smee and I don't think we've ever had a good I mean the, the flaw in PJ Hogan's film was Peter Pan wasn't strong and it's the same problem here this actor he's British at least and he's a little better but he's still not right you know we're still comparing him to the Peter Pan in the animated film Who's our Peter Pan? And so all of this stuff just it I, I think it's time to just cut this franchise loose and and let us live with our memories and come back and, thirty years and from and, now. and we're we're done with it. I think we've done Peter Pan today. Peter Pan and Wendy, David Lowry, the director and co-screenwriter, rated PG streaming on Disney Plus. Uh, the British action comedy Polite Society uh, stars Priya Kansara and Ritu Arya. The film's written and directed by Nita Manzoor. Claudia, what did you think of Polite Society? Uh, I found it quite entertaining. It's a fusion of British wit, kung fu action movie <laughs> scenes, and Bollywood. There it is. That's it. There it is. <laughs> so if you like any one of those, you know, um, and there's a bit of horror on, thrown in on. too. Yes. Right. <laughs> it's a mashup of genres, as you know, stated, and it's a, this very sweet celebration of sisterhood um, and the quest to realize your dream despite parental approve, disapproval. Um, and the lead actress, Priya Kansara, is really good. She's this teenage martial artist who wants to be a stunt person. She wants to save her older sister from what she thinks is going to be a disastrous marriage and utilizes her martial arts skills and pulls off a <laughs> wedding heist. <laughs> it's very entertaining. Um, yeah. Yeah, what, what did I you think, think Claudia liked it more than I did. I, <laughs> I, I love all three of those things. Yeah. I love a good British comedy. I love Bollywood. I love kung fu movies. Pack them all into one. <laughs> it's like jack of all trades, master of none. I I just didn't know what to make of this movie. I'm not a fan of mashups at, uh, at this level. And I mean, I could I can see what people would enjoy in it. I can appreciate that, but it kind of left me a little. It had little some Edgar cold. Wright qualities, I thought. Yeah, I could see some of that. Yeah, I just I just never con- I I never got in the groove. I was I never kind of found what they were looking for. Polite Society, the film from writer-director Nita Manzur. It's rated PG-13 and in wide release.
Freaks versus the Reich, also with an alternate title of Freaks Out, uh, is a fantasy war film directed by uh, Gabriella Minetti. What did you think, Wade, of Freaks versus the Reich? Yeah, Minetti's second film. So if Federico Fellini were hired to direct The Inglorious Bastards as X-Men in a World War II-era Italian Wizard of Oz allegory... <laughs> okay, there's a matchup. <laughs> this would be the movie. What a um, week. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that's a good thing. Thing. At two hours and twenty minutes, it really overstays its welcome. It's a, but it is a, it's a massively ambitious film. Um, it's, it's so ambitious that it's, it winds up being self-defeating. I think that's part of the problem. There, there, there can be too much ambition, and you can try too hard. And this film tries too hard. Uh, I mean, the, the quartet of circus freaks with special powers who are, you know, again fighting the Nazis, trying to rescue their, their Jewish. Uh, boss who's been taken away by the Nazis and at the same time the Nazi that they're fighting the most has six fingers and he can see the future and he has superpowers too. So there, there's this weird X-Men-y thing going on and it knows it and it kind of winks at you with some Marvel references and it just it winds up being too cute and too clever and too ambitious by more than half. Um, it's kind of an audition film. It's you know saying give me a Hollywood assignment please. And maybe that'll work. But as a piece of entertainment, it really overstays its welcome. And it's set in Italy? or It's set in Italy uh, when the Nazis, about 1943, when when the Nazis move into Italy to try to keep it in the, in the, in the coalition and they, you know, they occupy Rome. That's when all hell breaks loose. Freaks versus the Reich is unrated. It's in Italian with English subtitles. You can see it at Lemley's Glendale Theater, and it's available on demand. Uh, the Fabric of the Human Body is the English translation of De Humani Corporis uh, Fabrica, which is a documentary film deploying custom-made cameras uh, to um, look, is it inside the body, yep. Claudia? Yep, yep, Just yep. as it sounds? <laughs> Just as repulsive right. and as fascinating as it yeah. sounds. <laughs> um, yes, the human body's opened up for our examination and, uh, and, yes, for our revulsion in some ways, too. But the camera reveals and inspects the human body and offers this endlessly fascinating, unsettling, and really massively immersive landscape. Uh, as I was watching it, I was thinking, your body is a wonderland, um, but that's not the context that John Mayer thought, but it really is a fascinating. The bodies are really interesting. Um, and it's done in this fly-on-the-wall style, um, and there's no narration, there's no explanations, there's no you know, you don't know what part of the body you're looking at a lot of the times. Um, we at the LA Film Critics gave it our Experimental Film Award uh, this year. And so you see all these body parts and innards and entrails and all kinds of things. And you're trying to guess. And so you see, like, magnified eyes being sliced. Um, and it's unclear for what purpose. And um, maybe cataracts, maybe a lens transplant. You see brains being poked and prodded and surgerized. And... Um, the filmmakers use these microscopic cameras. They travel through veins and arteries. And then the audio is this casual conversation because they're just basically in several hospitals in France. And they're just, it's a conversation of the doctors and the nurses and the other medical workers just, you know, about parking or about, you know, well, the most, <laughs> oh, nothing to do with As them. As you're seeing an ice <laughs> yes. open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you see people who are on the brink of death. You see, we actually do see a corpse whose socks are being put on. And then the women, these cheerful women who are, they put his underwear on backwards, dressing him back up for, I guess, to put him in the in the morgue. Um, at one point, the surgeon complains about some muscle deteriorating in his arm. And someone says, you're gonna get surgery. And he's like, are you kidding? And that's how you feel. You walk out of this going, may I never be in a hospital. However, you also walk away, you know, really impressed by the wonders of medicine and this was done around the around the early 2000s and i have to think that some of the tugging and slicing and dicing would now be done more meticulously with lasers and things like that but i found it fascinating um but off-putting we're talking about the documentary De Humani Corporis Fabrica, or The Fabric of the Human Body. It's in French with English subtitles. You can see the documentary at Lemley's Glendale in Glendale. The mystery thriller Snag is directed by Ben Milliken, who co-wrote the film and stars in it as well. Wade, what would you think of Snag? 
funny. It's another Neo Tarantino knockoff uh, with deep spaghetti Western credentials on it. Ben Milliken, some people might know from Bosch. He was on Bosch for a little bit uh, on TV. He's he's an Anglo-Australian uh, actor-director and very charming and very, very uh, entertaining as, you know, in the way that he casts himself here. He's uh, he's basically a drug mule in Mexico who it looks like just kind of a sweet, slackery guy, but turns out he's just unkillable. You just can't kill him. He's he's ruthless in kind of a dopey way. He just, he fights, he doesn't die, he's just, he's relentless. And if you get on his wrong side, you know, that's not where you want to be. But there's somebody more lethal, which is the woman who is the mother of the girl he falls in love with. He falls in love with a Mexican girl whose mom is a drug kingpin, and she does not want this loser with her daughter. So the film is now structured with the lovers on the run angle, and then there's what happened after that. And it keeps flashing back, then and now, then and now. And it's a little confusing. It's a little too cute. It's not as clever as, you know, some of the other films that try to do this. It has a true romance kind of vibe to it a little bit. Um, It's entertaining. It's not brilliant. But um, despite my misgivings, I kind of stuck with it. And I wound up, even though the end makes no sense at all, it's not satisfying, I did enjoy the relationship. Who does Jaime, I love Jaime Camille from uh, Jane the Virgin. Who does he play? Uh, boy, that's uh, Jaime Camille. I just thought he was, he's, he's listed there. But. Yeah, he's. Li- I don't know the actors. Because he's um, such a good comic actor. But It's oh. it's a good cast. It's a good cast. Whatever part he plays, he's good in it. Because <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no one in it who's bad. There's no one in it who's bad. Snag is the film. It's rated R in select theaters and available on demand. Claudia, we're almost out of time. Can you give us about 30 seconds, uh, maybe appropriately, on the end of sex? Yes. <laughs> it doesn't deserve much more. Um, Emily Hampshire, who played Stevie and Schitt's Creek is like the most recognizable face. And then also Colin Mockery from Whose Line Is It Anyway? It has its moments. Um, it's really hard to make a consistently good comedy. We all know that. Um, this one is uneven. It's not very original. There's some silly hijinks. There is one funny scene where they go to this sex club and run into people they don't want to run into there. Um, you know, I saw this played at TIFF, of all things, and it's really not of the Toronto caliber Festival, Toronto yeah. Film Festival. My, I keep telling filmmakers this, you know, if you make even an just a decent comedy. You'll probably get into a film festival because very few comedies are ever submitted to film festivals. And this is a good example of kind of a mediocre one, but, you know, with some laughs. Uh, it's a Canadian film, by the way, the romantic comedy, The End of Sex, starring Emily Hampshire and Jonas Chernick. Sean Garrity, the director, Jonas Chernick, who's in the cast, wrote the screenplay. It's rated R, and you can see it in select theaters. Coming up, we'll be talking with our John Horn. He'll be with us to uh, talk about what he experienced at CinemaCon at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. Movie theater owners feeling a bit more hopeful now. We'll find out the reasons why when we hear from John coming up in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, inviting everyone to join the ripple effect. Water plays a pivotal role in our lives, and every individual's actions matter in preserving this resource. Each action we take starts the ripple of change, making a greater impact throughout the community. Be part of the ripple effect and learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. Welcome back to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. In the late 1970s, movie theater owners started gathering every year. The event's now called CinemaCom. The annual convention ran from Monday to Thursday this past week in Las Vegas. CinemaCom's the largest gathering for the theater industries. There are attendees from more than 80 countries watching scores of previews of upcoming big studio movies. LA Arts and Entertainment reporter John Horn traveled to the event. He sat down 
along with John Fithian, the outgoing president and CEO of the National Association of Theater Owners. They talked about the streaming wars and its impact on the multiplex, what distribution models make the most money, and the relevance of art house movies in this blockbuster world. In the last few months, something interesting has happened, and you can categorize it however you want to do it. But Amazon had a film called Air that, according to some funny people, was too good to stream, and they put it in theaters. It did pretty good business. Uh, Netflix had a movie called Glass Onion, the Knives Out sequel, that they put in theaters for only a week, I guess, to say to everybody else, this movie's so good, we're going to give it to theaters, but you got to come to Netflix if you really want to watch it, unless you don't show up. And taken together, what do they show you about the evolving relationship between the theatrical business and streaming platforms? You, you've identified probably the most significant development of this week. The streaming wars that started pre-pandemic because streaming services were spending so much money buying up the best talent in town to go make movies and television shows for them that we lost temporarily some of the best filmmakers for theatrical movies. During the pandemic, of course the release models changed dramatically. A lot of movies went straight to streaming services. A lot of movies were released simultaneously to theaters and streaming services. And some movies were released theatrically with a window as they had been traditionally. And so everyone got to see a whole bunch of data. What does it mean when you release a movie first in a theater, wait a while and then go to the home? What does it mean when you do it at the same time? And what does it mean when you only send the movie to the home? And the data is extraordinarily clear now that the best business model for everybody is the first. In other words, you release a movie in cinemas, it has an exclusive period, you have a decent marketing campaign, it gets really well known, it makes a bunch of money in the cinema, and then when it pops on the streaming service later, it does even better on the streaming service than it would have done had it gone straight there. Speaking of data, um, the per capita admission numbers, according to the Motion Picture Association, 10 years ago, the average moviegoer in North America, US and Canada, went to the movies four times a year. Before the pandemic hit, that number was declining. It's now at two. Can that number ever get back to four, or is that the world theater owners have to accept as the new world? Uh, neither, potentially. The fact that theater admissions are now at two is in large measure a reflection of the fact that there haven't been enough movies in the marketplace to get people out of their homes more often. But it was declining in 2019. I, 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 said, I said neither, right? So hold on. So, so it's not going to stick at two forever, right? As the number of movies come back and the, and the diversity of movies appealing to all, genre, all demographics comes back, uh, so too will, will theater attendance numbers and box office numbers. But the other thing I would say is that we're already making as much or more on a per movie basis than we made before the pandemic. Can a business survive that has lost one out of every three customers? It's a dollar figure. It's a third for now because we're, we still don't have, we're still missing a third of the movies. So the real, the real question you're driving at is, uh, is, a, is attendance the key factor? And I would say attendance is an important factor, but it's not the key factor. If you're in a for-profit business, the key factor is gross revenues, right? Let's talk about income inequality at the box office. In 2019, the top 10 movies for the year accounted for about 30-some-odd percent of all tickets sold. Last year, it was about 70%. And there are plenty of movies that I can name off the top of my head that were good movies that nobody saw. Tar, She Said, Women Talking, Till, the list goes on. And you can say everything everywhere is the outlier, but that's the exception to that rule. It feels like there's no middle and very little bottom now, that it's all hits all the time. And I don't know if that's a consequence of there not being as many titles or that audiences now say will come out for the Super Bowl, but we're not gonna watch the playoff game. Remember that both production and exhibition were seriously stopped and then massively delayed by the pandemic. And as movie makers ramped back up their movie production, what do you think they started with? Big, huge blockbusters that can make a lot of money fast for studios who are really, really desperate for revenues to come back. I would argue though, John, with no offense to any of the movies that you just cited, those movies are all Oscar bait. 
Not a whole lot of people want to watch an Academy Award show where Tar's nominated. That's an intense art film designed for a very small audience and also designed for awards contention. You're describing Black Swan as well, which grossed $170 million. So I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. But if I am a studio executive and I see that the older 60 and older filmmakers aren't coming back to the same numbers that other moviegoers are, and I look at those films, my concern would be that they would say, that doesn't work. And we're going to stop making But wait, movies. your premise on the older demographic not coming back is wrong. Your premise that small budget and mid-budget films may be more challenged now than pre-pandemic has some validity to it. I'm just not saying it's as big of a crisis as you think it is. But I, I, but I will emphatically challenge the, uh, the mid-pandemic reality, post-pandemic myth of two demographics. One is that seniors don't want to come back to the movies. And one is that families with young children don't want to come back to the movies. Look what happened with Super Mario, okay? And by the same token, if you look at the demographics on movies like Elvis or Top Gun or 80s for Brady or a whole number of movies where the, the senior demographic skewed very, very high on those types of movies compared to what they would have been even pre-pandemic. So I do not believe it's the case that seniors and families are, are not coming back to the cinema. I just think they haven't had enough content that appeals to them. If you want to see a movie... You have a choice of maybe 12. If you're in a smaller market, maybe six. You're going to have to see it at a certain time on a certain night, and you're going to have to drive to get there. Is there any way that model can evolve? Because it hasn't changed in a century. The theatrical model hasn't changed in a century. Provocative, but wrong. You're citing elements of the model that have not changed and ignoring massive improvements in the experience that have but changed. You're not, we're not talking about seats, recliners, food. I'm talking about... Well, of course you are. I'm talking about when you can see a movie. So let me back up first and tell you what has changed in the model, okay? Premium large formats, immersive sound systems, luxury recliner chairs, food and beverage service at all levels of low end to high end. My wife picks her theater based on where the best Cabernet is. Yes, we need to continue to refurbish and upgrade, but we have made all these technological and experiential achievements in the cinema without raising the ticket prices faster than the cost of inflation. Because it's still the case that tickets today, compared to tickets in the 1970s, are slightly less than what they would have been with the cost of inflation. No argument. So all that improvement in the experience, I think, contradicts soundly that the model of the experience in theaters hasn't changed for 100 years. Your only point is... Watch the movie when you want to watch the movie. That is what here's, is important. Here's I've got the difference. Two kids. That's all kids care about. When no, can I watch it's it? It's not. And where can I watch it? It's not. And here's why. Your kids are different than okay. mine. <laughs> uh, it's, here's, here's why the when can I watch it is not an issue. When you go out to a restaurant, when you go out to a movie theater, when you go out to a sporting event, when you go out to, you name it, laser tag, I don't care what it is, it's a decision to have an event experience. And therefore, you pick the time you want to go. And you go online and you look at all the screen times and all the locations. And there are many, many, many choices in the time in which you see it. But you do have to go out at the time you picked. But that's okay. It's an event experience. It's not the same thing as the home. The last thing I'll say about your multiplicity of ways to watch movies in the home, which is actually correct, is that the research shows that the more sophisticated devices people have in the home to watch movies and television shows, the more they go out to the movies because movie lovers are movie lovers. John, it's been great talking with you. All right. Thanks, thanks again John. for your time. When we come back, John Horn speaks with a small town theater owner about how popcorn paid the mortgage through the pandemic. We'll be back. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. Our John Horn attended CinemaCon in Las Vegas this past week. It's the annual gathering of movie theater owners. They see studio previews and talk about their business. John sat down with a handful of theater owners, one of them being Stephen Shopes, who runs a single two-screen theater in Seminole, Oklahoma. 
Tell me about Seminole. How many people live there and what's the town like? Seminole currently is about 7,800 people. Uh, Seminole was the home of the biggest oil strike in the United States in the 20s. And uh, I think 10% of all the oil in the world was produced in Seminole that year. Uh, And Seminole grew to uh, over 100,000 people in the late 1920s. So tell me how you came to own a movie theater. What happened was I was retired out of the hospital business, and it was rumored that the theater was being sold uh, or was on the block to be sold, the local theater, to someone who was going to turn into a dollar discount house, which if you're in economic development in small towns, when you lose your movie theater or it gets demoted to a, from a first-run theater to a dollar cinema in those days, uh, that's the kiss of death for a town. So I went to him and I, I made an offer, which I thought was ridiculously low. Uh, and by that night, I owned a movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess he was uh, eager to sell. Before that, had you been a movie fan? Did you go to that theater beforehand? Tell me about your love of movies. We have always been movie people. We've many times on birthdays or anniversaries, um, we will go to one or two or maybe three movies in one day and make it a full day and go to dinner in between. Uh, So we were movie people from the beginning. Now, I've covered Hollywood a long time. And whenever somebody who might have a little money is asked about investing in the movie business, smart people say, be prepared to lose everything. Is owning a movie theater a business? Is it, is, are the margins good? Are you able to make a living on, on running a theater? I've told people for years that if you're looking to retire wealthy and have a family of four, this isn't the business for you. You have to love the business. It does make money. There's no question about it. If it's run correctly, it makes money. You have to be able to withstand the cyclical nature of movie business. Maybe not in the big cities, but in the rural areas especially, we live and breathe based on the the public school schedule. When public schools let out, we get busy. When public schools are in session, we aren't busy. And then again, you have seasonal changes. For example, sp- spring break is a big movie time. And then there's nothing really until Memorial Day weekend. From Memorial Day weekend, it goes all the way through Labor Day. Between Labor Day and Thanksgiving, there's not much. And then from Thanksgiving to first week in January, um, it's fairly busy and sometimes really busy, depending on what movies there are. And then uh, in January to March, it's dead. Now, the movie studios have gotten a lot better about releasing movies throughout the, the calendar now, and that has helped a lot. But I can tell you that the movie business is all about the movies. It doesn't matter how good, and this is where I, I part with my friends in other exhibitors. If the movies are not good, it doesn't matter what the theater does you can't get people to come to movies. People are not going to come to bad movies. So you had the opportunity to testify uh, in front of the U.S. House of Representatives. You've done your research. I have. That's my job. And I have in front of me your prepared remarks. That It was a committee on small business called State of the Small Business Economy in the Era of COVID-19, February 4th, 2021. I'm going to quote yourself back to you. You said, comparing our theater's 2019 revenues to the same period in 2020, we have seen a 92.5% reduction. We have been forced to reduce our staffing to almost nothing and have resorted to selling popcorn and concessions to go. How did you survive? How are you still in business today? That's an interesting story. Um, We first did sell popcorn to go for a long time. We started by delivering it to people's houses because people would not come out even. Uh, we literally would... Now, when you say we, is this you and your wife my driving? My wife your, and I. What kind of car are you driving here? I I had a Tesla. Okay, so the Tesla popcorn guy pulls up and he's got a hot tub of buttered popcorn you're selling for $5? No, we had these bags that were about 36 inches long that we filled with popcorn they're, they're popcorn bags. They're clear bags. And we would, uh, we would make these. And I'm telling you, at the high point, we made 40 50 a day. And 
that's what we delivered and we delivered and it got we had probably the first time we delivered 25 or 30 deliveries which for a small town is a big deal the problem became that we were exposing ourselves and we were exposing other people again to that so we developed a drive up system where you came up you texted us let us know you were in the parking lot we had your order we everything was touchless we went through paypal we uh, had or you could order online. It was we we converted our movie website to a <laughs> concessions to go website. But that's a fraction of what you would make when you're selling tickets and everybody there is buying concessions. It's probably what maybe your five percent of your normal revenues or well, so. Well, our our key was to cover the mortgage. Did you ever think that maybe you weren't going to make it? No, I never did. I knew we were going to make it. Were we going to make it in the same form that we were in? I wasn't sure of that. Um, we had a tremendous community support. We had people coming and, you know, you can, these giant bags of popcorn, you can eat so many of them and that's it. We had people buying them two and three times a week. And I, we asked them, what are you doing with all this popcorn? They said, we don't care about the popcorn. We want to make sure you guys survive. And we had so many people that came and said that. And we had people taking, taking pictures when we delivered our popcorn to them originally. They would take pictures of it and post it on Facebook. So then it just started snowballing. And it was it was a lot of fun at first. So it started out, you know, I hadn't worked that much concession in a long time. So it was, I popped a lot of popcorn. What role do you think the theater serves in being a place where your community comes together? I mean, obviously they were very generous in buying popcorn. They had no room to eat. But what does the theater mean in terms of the city and about a place where people come together? A lot of the families, they trust that they can drop their children off at the movie theater and they're going to be okay. And so it's kind of like we're all a big family at times. And I know my customers, my wife and I know our customers as they come in. We talk to them about everything, anything and everything when they come through. Just last week I was stopped. Are you guys doing okay? Uh, so I think it's... Um, I think we're still having those moments. We did have a lot of those moments when we opened up again after being closed for nine months because it, I don't think it would have mattered what we showed. Uh, it packed the house. It was a, it, People wanted to get back. They wanted to make sure we were okay. Yes, we had uh, decreased uh, the number of people we allowed in the theater. We made them sit you know, six feet apart and wear masks and do all those things, but still... They wanted to come back, and I think it, you know, it made us feel very well loved in our community. I am very optimistic right now. I really appreciate your coming in. I'm so glad I ran into you yesterday. So thanks for your time. It's our John Horn talking with theater owner Stephen Shopes at CinemaCon in Las Vegas this past week. If you missed any part of their conversation or our critics' reviews, just go to LAist.com. You can listen to full episodes of Film Week anytime you want or download those episodes wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us at Film Week, have a wonderful weekend. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.